Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together, Bruce and I have written 35, are currently writing the 36th cookbook, including what is out right now, the Instant Air Fryer Bible. Woohoo! Yay! A book all written for instant brands, Vortex and Omni Machines, although you can use it for any kind of air fryer out there because, as I've said a million times, 350 degrees is 350 degrees after all. It's got step-by-step photographed recipes. It's a fairly simple collection of recipes to get you better using your air fryer. We're very excited about that, but we're not talking about air fryers in this podcast. Instead, we're talking about the gross food on (laughs) airplanes. We're going to have our one-minute cooking tip. We have an interview with Jorge Gavari the author of Masa, and of course, as always, we're going to tell you what's making us happy in food this week, so let's get started. Airline food, it sucks. I think that's really, I think that's the end of segment one. Airline okay, food, so our one-minute cooking tip up next. <laughs> okay, that's not enough to okay, say. Okay, Mark and I have actually had some incredible eating experiences on planes, but that's when we've got bumped up into first class on international flights, and it's really lovely where they wheel the smoked salmon down the aisle and slice it fresh. Through a series of almost mishaps, and it's a long story and it's comically ridiculous, but through a series of mishaps, we got bumped into first class on Swiss Air once, and I mean beyond business class, the new first class, and it was... Just this insane experience of pouring, you know, $300 bottles of champagne and hand slicing smoked fish. <laughs> and it was it was really honestly almost laughable what happened in first class on Swiss Air because it was just so over the top. They actually asked us. Uh, they knelt down and asked us if we were okay with their de-icing the plane. I mean, what am I to say? No. No, well, take off right now and crash, please. I think given that those seats would have been about $20,000 each coming yeah. home from Zurich, if, if you wanted more. to say no, then they probably would have said Okay, we're going to deposit another 100,000 miles in your account, just sort of like as a thank you for being patient. That's true. Okay, so, you know, the food served on planes is often disgusting, and there is very limited choice, and it is not like it used to be. Mm -hmm. You have Mm -hmm. to be on a long-haul flight to even be served any food options whatsoever, and the options in coach are almost nil Do you at want this the point. chicken sandwich or do you want the pork right, sandwich and they're pre, both the same thing? Right. It's pre-wrap sandwiches. You can, on some airlines, still even in coach, order ahead. And let me tell you my secret. This is just my little secret. Is that I often order the kosher meal and I am not <laughs> kosher. I know that sounds ridiculous. However, the kosher meal has been supervised by more than just a line of, you know, gloved and hairnetted people. And so I find that the kosher meal, and I don't really care what comes at me then at that moment. Is it a dairy meal? Is it a meat meal? Is it a parv meal? I don't care because I just think that I have bumped up the supervision of my my meal one level, even though I'm not kosher. Now, of course, that means I'm not going to eat shrimp, and I'm not going to get any pork, and I'm not going to get any meat and cheese mixed together, but still, nonetheless, I'll get something that I think is slightly better. I think most people know you can order like a kosher meal, you can order a gluten-free meal, you can order a diabetic meal, but 
Most airlines have a huge menu that you could choose from, and people don't realize this. So the next time you're going on a flight and you know a meal is going to be long served, haul flight. well, yes, you got to say it's a long haul flight because I'm flying back and forth a lot to St. Louis yeah, no, to see my mom. They don't even serve any meal. But when you buy your ticket, it'll tell you whether a meal is being served. If a meal is being served, you can go down under special requests where you can ask for a wheelchair or you can ask for assistance. True. And during True. and in that part online or even on the phone, you could say, I'd like a special meal. And every airline has their own list. And the lists often include things like Hindu meals. Yeah, and let me tell you, if I don't order the kosher meal, I often order the Hindu vegetarian meal. Mm. I know it's really crazy, but I actually think that I'm getting something that is beyond the normal line of prepackaged meals. Well, according to Air India, they claim, because they have, of course, a bigger list than a lot of places. Of course. Um, they say that their Hindu meal has no beef or pork, and it is usually spicy to very spicy. Right. And the IATA, International Air Transportation Association, has guidelines of what all these meals need to be. So you can get yourself an Asian vegetarian meal. And I had that once. And what it was was really nice vegetable curry. And like that's so much better than the gloppy, well-done beef and mashed potatoes. Okay, and let me also, and we're going to go off food here for just a second, but it's kind of food tangential or food related. Let me tell you that the best way to get good service on an airplane, <laughs> and this is honestly the best thing that you could possibly do. Go to Starbucks, get several, if you play a lot, get five, five dollar gift cards. When the flight attendant serves you or helps you in any way, including helping put your bag up into the bin, which they don't have to do. And many airlines, do you know that until the boarding door is shut, they're not even being paid at that moment. So they don't have to do any of that. Then when they put your luggage up there or they serve your whatever, say thank you and hand the flight attendant a $5 mm. Starbucks card. You will get the best service of your life. I want to go back to they're not being paid even though they're being asked yeah, to work. That, they're on the plane. It's changing in some airlines. Workers revolt. I well, mean, this is are. like... Come they, on. There are, because unions are uh, are pushing back on this. But you're not paid as a flight attendant for many airlines from the moment the boarding door opens on. So the minute that door opens, they go off the clock. Even though they're standing there going, bye-bye. Exactly. Bye-bye, they're you. not actually being paid at that moment. And they're not paid until that boarding door shuts. So just think how frustrated you are when you sit on that plane for an hour with that boarding door open because there's a delay. Okay. Yeah. And you're deservedly frustrated. But think about the flight attendants. They're not they're even si- being paid. They're sitting there being unpaid Mm -hmm. sitting in the plane. Mm -hmm. So just think about what they must be feeling at that moment. Well, going back to food, okay? Okay, back to food. Off my $5 Starbucks. (laughs) So we talked about the Asian vegetarian, the Hindu meal. One of my favorite things to order if it's a flight with a meal is the seafood meal. And that seems like, what? There's a seafood meal? And it is. I ordered it once, and while everyone else around me got the disgusting pasta and the dried-up piece of chicken, (laughs) I got this enormous shrimp cocktail. And it was just like eight giant shrimp and cocktail sauce. And it was like, wow, that was really good. If you don't want to order things on 
the plane or in advance or you're on short flights as I am back and forth through St. Louis where I have to connect and I'm on two short flights getting there and all that kind of stuff. If you don't want to do that, then let me say, don't wait until you get to the airport to buy food. I know a lot of people wait till they get through TSA security and then in the United States or whatever security check in whatever country they're in. And then they see their food options and they end up paying $900 for, <laughs> for a, a tuna fish sandwich <laughs> at some nasty place inside the airport. Remember, you, you, you can't buy a drink. You can't bring a coffee through the pre-checks and all that kind of stuff. But you can stop at a place and pick up a better meal. For example, on our way to our airport, which admittedly is an hour away because we live in very rural New England, believe it or not, we pass a little shop that sells banh mi sandwiches. <laughs> I know this sounds ridiculous, right? Banh mi in rural New England. But it's true. It, they, they make banh mi there. And we always stop there and pick up two banh mi sandwiches and stick them in our carry-on and... That's that. Then, you know, of course, I'm going to drink bottled water on the plane or whatever. But there you go. That's the other thing. Only drink bottled water when you get on a plane. Do not drink water that doesn't come out of a bottle. Do not drink the coffee. Do Do not not drink the tea because the water tanks in the plane never get Well, okay, now, you just overstated. It's not never get cleaned, but they rarely get cleaned. They do get cleaned, but it is extremely rare. Watch. The flight attendants will not drink the coffee, Mm -hmm. the tea, or the water that comes out of the tap. Hence the Starbucks certificates. Yeah, hence (laughs) the, the flight attendants are looking for Starbucks when they land. The ice is different. Ice is delivered as ice to the plane. So you can be pretty assured sure that that's all right. But the water tanks on jets that make the coffee, tea, and the drinking water, don't touch it. Don't touch it. You're talking a bacterial infection within five seconds. No flight attendant around will touch it. You know, I think that this is, before we end this segment, I think that this is a good rule. We used to work on cruise ships. Um, Bruce and I did cooking shows on Holland America lines for years. And I learned to watch the people who work for Holland America <laughs> and follow their practices. And one of the things I quickly learned on Holland America is that anybody who works on the ships, A, does not shake hands with passengers under any circumstances and does not use any handrails, goes up and down the stairs without ever touching a handrail. Why? Because of norovirus and because of catching norovirus on the cruise ship. So they're very careful about not touching handrails and not shaking hands. They stand in front of passengers with their arms folded so that- And nod. (laughs) uh So that you can't shake this. So I think it's always a good idea to watch the people who work. So watch the flight attendants. See what they they do. do. And next time you're on a flight and you know a meal's being served, think about ordering something in advance because you can get a better meal than what they've been serving. And according to Greg Gray Jr., who's the executive chef at the luxury spa Golden Door, he works with Singapore Airlines to develop their vegetarian meals. And his advice is you're sitting on a plane not doing heavy lifting. You don't need all that protein. So order a vegetarian meal. Order the fruit platter meal. You'll get a giant fruit salad, and that is always a good choice on a plane. Right. It is a good choice. I think the fruit platter, I mean, it's not 
mm, if you have hypoglycemia, as I do, it's not a great choice because I'll get a headache from a fruit platter. <laughs> but that's my problem, which means that I'm better off with the vegetarian options. And it also, when I ask for a vegetarian option or a kosher option or the Hindu option, often I don't get a carb-loaded meal either. And that's always big for me, too, because carbs just make me kind of logy on the plane. Mm-hmm. And I think that all of that is really great information. Before we get on to our next segment, which is our one-minute cooking tip, let me remind you that it would be great if you subscribed to this podcast, if you rated it, if you're on Apple Podcasts or audiobooks or wherever you're seeing it, you can drop down often and leave a rating. And if you could write a review, we would be eternally thankful. We would probably dance at your wedding or your next <laughs> wedding or your next divorce or whatever next celebration you have <laughs> in your life. We would dance at that because it would mean a great deal to us. Because again, as I've said a million times, we are doing this completely unsupported without sponsors. Dancing not guaranteed. Okay, so up next, our one minute cooking tip. Use your stand mixer with the paddle to blend ground beef, eggs, breadcrumbs, and spices when you're making meatballs and meatloaf. I'm going to tell you that I've watched Bruce do this a thousand times. Now, say that again, because just say it slowly because it's an important part here. Say it again. Take out your stand mixer and put on the paddle That's the important, not the dough hook and not (laughs) the whisk. The paddle attachment, then throw in your ground beef, sausage if you use it, breadcrumbs, eggs, spices, milk, whatever else is going in that meat mixture for meatballs or meatloaf, that mixer will blend it so evenly, so fast, and you do not have to stick your hands into the wet, goopy, icky mess meat, get it under your fingernails, and quite honestly, I often find that that mixture is so cold it hurts my fingers. So the machine does a great job of blending uh, yeah, meat. Yeah, and also you can throw those bowls and that paddle right in the dishwasher Amen. when you're done. Okay, that's our one-minute cooking tip for this week's podcast. Up next, Bruce's interview with Jorge Gavaria. He's the author of Masa, and he has completely changed our tortilla and tamale game. I'll say this in advance Mm -hmm. with this fantastic book. We have a range of his products actually sitting in our pantry now. So up next, Bruce's interview with Jorge Gavaria. Today we're talking to Jorge Gaviria, owner of Macienda, which is a specialty purveyor focused on heirloom masa and corn. And now he is the author of his first book, Masa, Techniques, Recipes, and Reflections on a Timeless Staple. Hey, Jorge, how are you? Good. How are you, Bruce? Good. Thanks for joining me. Of course. For most of us making tortillas or tamales at home, it means opening up a bag of Maseca instant corn masa mix. Mm-hmm. And I like that in your book, you equate that to uh, the bisquick of masa. So let's start with talking about real corn masa. What is it and what it takes to make it? Yeah. So real corn masa, um, we'll start with kind of like the fresh version of it. Um, So masa is the Spanish word for dough. But most commonly throughout modern day Mesoamerica, which includes Mexico, you know, Central America, parts of South America, um, you know, where everywhere the masa foodway touches, it's referring specifically to a, um, a special kind of corn dough. And the specialness comes from the fact that corn is cooked in an alkaline solution, alkaline meaning just sort of basic on that spectrum of pH. Uh, and ground into a dough once once cooked and soaked. 
So technically, masa means dough. In this case, it means a special corn dough. Once you cook the corn that has been processed, is that just um, pozole? If I don't grind it into masa, am I, am I, do I just have pozole? Basically, yeah. Pozole is nixtamalized whole corn um, mm -hmm. that's actually been cook down even further. So like the point that you would want to cook corn for a tortilla is different than you would probably want to cook it for pozole. People want less bite on pozole. It's meant to sort of be more of like a, a lighter starch. I think a lot of folks tend to kind of really like scrub the pozole down, the nixtamal down. So it's like has no skin on it. But yeah, 100%. I use them interchangeably. So traditional masses say is grinding this, this processed corn. How important was the evolution into drying and milling this masa into masa harina or masa flour? It was a turn of the century um, development. You know, it actually, it started first in Texas uh, through a kind of a small mom and pop uh, tortilleria. Um, the owner of that shop realized that, you know, the masa was drying really quickly in the Texas heat. And he was like, well, you know, this is a great way to avoid losses. So he thought about, you know, if you think about masa, it's like, 75, 80% moisture. It's highly, highly, um, you know, composed of water before, uh, you know, you go to cook it into a tortilla or whatever you use. So it's highly perishable. And um, if you're not going to put any types of preservatives in it, uh, it's, you know, maybe we're looking at like a couple hours uh, unrefrigerated or maybe a whole day refrigerated. So, you know, the idea of removing that moisture, so you have a, a you know, a maybe by comparison, 10% moisture uh, composition in that masa, it made sure that you could have it, you know, for years, potentially, uh, you know, extend that shelf life for a long time without incurring losses. But it really wasn't until if that was like 1900 ish, it wasn't until like the 1940s that Maseca gets started. Um, and then became they became so popular that, uh, of course, like people actually think that masarina means maseca or maseca means masarina, but it's not always the other way around, if that makes sense. What is the difference between maseca and like the kind of masarina that you're producing? So maseca is a brand name of uh, masarina. It happens to be probably the most popular and widely commercially available. Uh, there are other brands of masarina out there. Um, Masienda, my company, makes a masarina that uses a totally different um, raw ingredient. So it's it's all corn, um, field corn in this case, which is different from the kind of sweet corn that we might eat during the summer on a cob. This field corn goes through that whole sort of alchemy process of, of nixtamalization that I mentioned earlier, where it's treated with an alkaline solution. It makes it palatable. It makes it nutritious. makes it workable into a dough. We use an heirloom corn uh, that's sourced throughout Mexico. So um, different kinds of heirloom corn specifically that are endemic to certain regions in Mexico that have really beautiful flavor characteristics, texture nuance. Um, and we, you know, treat those sort of, we dial into each variety for each batch of masarina that we do. So we have several colors of masarina uh, that come from several different kinds of, of varieties of heirloom corn. And then we're also kind of taking a more deliberate slow drying process. So like kind of similar to what you might expect from, um, you know, from pasta, for example, artisanal, you know, bronze cast uh, pasta that's then slowly dried. It's meant to really preserve the nutrients and the flavor that comes in that natural, um, you know, it's natural form. And, and the same thing happens with masa. And we, we take that extra time and step to make sure it's, it's as true to what it, you know, could be in that fresh state as possible. 
And all the recipes in your book allow you to use the um, mussarini you sell, or you could start from the fresh field, the dried field corn, mm -hmm. and process it yourself. You the, the whole first part of the book is about that process. So let's talk about making more authentic fresh masa at home. The first step, cook the corn. You claim if you could boil an egg, you can do this. So <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there is the addition of the calcium hydroxide, or cal mm -hmm. as you call it in the book. So what exactly does it do to the corn? I really mean it. I'll just say it one more time. Uh, first of all, you nailed it. You can make every, basically every uh, finished plate in this book, like at, whether it's a tamal or a pupusa or, you know, a masa cookie, you can make that all with masa harina. So I want to like really encourage everybody who is seeing this book and hearing about it, that like there is a way to do this in the easiest way possible and still get a significant payoff in terms of just like taste reward. Um, but uh, if you were to, um, you know, do this process, from the kernel to masa side. And there's a whole chapter that really is dedicated to kind of unpacking every variable in that process. Um, I did that because, you know, it's been an oral tradition to date. It's never really been covered in a book extensively. And, and there's just so many questions in my line of work that people have when they want to, when they want to dive into this, it's something that's been kind of a, you know, it's top of mind for professional chefs and increasingly home cooks, but it's super simple, Bruce. All you do is you just take a pot of water, you cover the corn um, with water, and then you just put a dash of, uh, of powder in it. You know, in this case, it's like a highly caustic powder, but like, you know, it's less than you, it's less than you would actually like salt for water, you know, for pasta water. It's like, it's such a small amount. It's literally 1% of the weight of the corn is what you would use uh, for this calcium hydroxide. And the calcium hydroxide is what we most commonly use today. It's, it's actually derived from limestone. Um, so it's, it's natural um, and it's basic um, in, in substance. So on the pH scale, it's, it's, uh, you know, close to like a 12, 12 and a half, um, pH, uh, you know, acids are kind of lower on the pH scale. Um, and what this means is that it's going to help it's caustic. It's going to break down the corn, um, you know, corn as it is, if you've ever taken a bite of like a raw corn kernel, it's, it's not exactly the most like palatable, delicious thing. Um, so it does a few things. It, it, it makes it more delicious. Um, you know, it's almost like it creates this sort of umami factor for corn um, and really helps, you know, just cooking corn in general makes it taste better. But cooking it with this calcium hydroxide really imbues it with this like deeper kind of nuance of flavor. Um, it kind of just makes it taste like, you know, buttered popcorn on steroids. It's really good. And then uh, it also, you know, renders it into a kind of a, a workable state to be ground into a dough. Um, and basically, you know, the, the skin of the corn, it's called the pericarp, is broken down in this process. It, it basically sort of emulsifies it, gelatinizes the, that corn so that it can actually, again, because corn doesn't have gluten, it really needs this step in order to make it into kind of a workable dough. Um, you know, it, uh, it imbues it with nutrition. So, you know, calcium hydroxide, cal is what we're using here. It, it gives it a nice dose of calcium. Um, it also helps uh, basically break down the cell walls of the kernel so that your body is able to now absorb the naturally occurring niacin amino acids in this corn, which there's a lot of. So basically, long story short, it's a miracle. It is alchemy. Uh, it's super easy to do. And when you don't do it, you basically get an empty calorie that might still taste good, like polenta, you know, or, or grits, but could taste better and feel better in your body if it were in, a, in an extemalized form. So before you can 
grind the nixtamalized corn. You have to rinse it though, right? You have to get some of that, that calcium hydroxide off. Um, yeah. Can you overdo it there? Or is, is there a subtlety to how much you want to take off versus not? You know, I recommend a 50% wash off, which is like, you know, sort of not to be too technical, you could theoretically like split 50% of the weight and do a full vigorous wash off for that. You want to just make sure you leave a little bit of the skins in there because the skins that sort of, they become this like pulpy substance, you know, before you try to take them off, you know, if you were trying to take a skin off of a kernel of corn before you've nixtamalized it, it's quite tough to do. Um, and this is like, you know, if you've ever eaten popcorn, this is the stuff that gets stuck in your teeth. Like we don't typically, you know, associate that with something we want, but we do kind of want it for the purposes of making masa because it's what holds masa together. It's one of those binding agents that kind of like works with all of the other components of that corn to make it stick and, and uh, elastic. So yeah, I recommend about a 50% wash off as sort of like a, a ballpark to get started. And that makes sure that you're, you know, rinsing enough to get that flavor and some of that color that the calcium hydroxide produces off. Um, it turns it to kind of a yellowy uh, color and can definitely have kind of an off flavor if you don't rinse it a little bit, but um, just enough of it and it, it works great and it helps you kind of reach that that desirable masa workable state you're looking for. So grinding masa at home, it could be done with a hand mill. Um, yeah. You sell them on your website and they're not terribly expensive, but you also talk about and show how to grind the cooked nixtamalized corn in the food processor. Um, mm -hmm. You talk about adding some dry masa harina to it, or you could dry it in the oven. So what's happening here? Why do I have to add something or dry it um, if I follow the recipe? It's a bit of an imperfect system using a food processor at home. I just included that recipe because it's something that we all have readily available. Uh, we don't all have necessarily a, you know, like a little hand mill lying around. Um, but, you know, for food processors in particular, to get them to work properly, you really need to make sure that they're sort of just, there's enough moisture, there's enough liquid in there to kind of keep the blade spinning and kind of keep distributing it for additional cutting, basically. So you end up having to get to a point where there's quite a bit of water in there in order for the blades to run and for the corn to be broken down. So um, too much water actually to the point where it's like not in a workable state. So you need to kind of reduce that moisture, uh, you know, which is like counterintuitive. Again, this is not my, I wouldn't recommend, this isn't my favorite way, but enough folks ask about it that we just, we, we made sure that this was included in there. So yeah, you either do that by adding a little bit of masarina, which is the easiest way to do it. In fact, like most tortillerias, believe it or not, they will sometimes overcook corn or they will, um, you know, put too much water in the trickle when they're grinding the corn and sort of a similar thing happens. They need to quickly you know, get the masa to a workable state so it can go through the tortilla machines. And, um, you know, they'll usually add some masarina to kind of like cut that moisture and get it back to where they want. Alternatively, you could let it kind of dry out for a couple hours in a, you know, low temperature in your oven, which you're welcome to do. Um, you know, I just think that really up to you and how ambitious you want to be here. Uh, you could also buy like a $40 hand mill and, you know, call it a day and, and have a much easier solution for you and a longer longer term basis, but we uh, want to make sure you have options. Will the hand mill give you a different textured finished product than the food processor? Yeah, it will. I mean, you know, both are essentially cutting the, the nixtamol, um, you know, as sort of the way the grinding happens more so the food processor than the hand mill. The hand mill, both are using metal basically to kind of to, to 
break down the Nixtamol. Um, it just feels it's a little bit more efficient with the, the hand mill because it's also kind of giving it like a, um, in addition to cutting, it's kind of doing a little bit of kneading as well. And the, the, it's just, it's just slightly more efficient from one pass. You could actually get one pass on a hand mill. I used to, I used to think that wasn't possible, but you totally can, you know, this is all like secondary. If you were to have an actual stone basalt mill, that's like the best case scenario. Um, you know, that's what tortillerias use. That's what, you know, all Molinos use. Like these are, these are basalt stones that are working at very high speeds work, you know, kind of grinding against each other to create a beautifully aerated masa. Um, Harold McGee talks about this in his book where it's the utility of this tool. It cannot be understated. It mashes, grinds, kneads, mixes masa basically to order. So it's like practically, the, it's the most perfect it can be. Um, but, you know, understandably, not everybody has 2000 bucks to buy a, you know, a tabletop uh, molinito and, and do it at home. But uh, it is also an option we should talk about. Yeah, of course. So now you've gotten the masa to the right consistency, you hope. In your book, you refer to the way to know as the smush test. Very, It's very technical. Trademark that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the smush test is basically, you know, I think one of the most common things I find in when we're like diagnosing any kind of, um, you know, masa related questions at home is, is moisture. How much moisture does the masa have? If it doesn't have enough, it's going to crack. And so the smush test is a really easy way to just tell uh, this straight away. You roll a ball of masa, you know, about the size of like a walnut or ping pong ball, um, and you smush it in your hands between the palm of your hands. And that smushing, once you, you know, you take your other hand away, if there are cracks on the edges, the outer edges of that smushed pancake that's now in your fingers and your hands, um, you probably want to give it a little more water. It's probably a little thirsty. And if it's not, if it's not cracking, um, you know, you're probably good to go unless it's like overly sticking in your hands, in which case you want to dry it a little bit or add some masadina to, to balance that moisture. And the other really technical um, <laughs> you have, once you've cooked your tortilla, how do you know whether it's cooked correctly? You call that the crumple test. Yep. Another, you got to say trademark, Bruce, after every time you say this. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I, we didn't trademark these things. Uh, the crumple test is literally just getting a tortilla. So like what do people, most often people complain about a corn tortilla because they say that they fall apart, which is why a lot of people prefer a wheat tortilla, but you can actually get to a really beautiful elastic state in a corn tortilla if you've treated it right. Crucial to this is making sure that you get a little bit of a steam, ideally like in a tortilla warmer, we, we sell those online, but you can also use a kitchen towel. And basically the steam of a pile of tortillas, even if you had like a crusty tortilla, like a nice sort of like Nice crust on the outside, kind of molten in the center. The steaming, additional steaming for a couple of minutes will actually render it to a point where it's quite elastic. You can kind of stretch it. It's got like a nice, nice give to it, which is perfect for eating a taco or whatever you're going to stack on top. And the way you can tell, especially again, highly recommend it steams first, but you do this crumple test where you just take a tortilla and you kind of just crumple it up in your hands like you would a piece of paper that you're going to throw into a garbage can across the room. And uh, when you crumple it, hold it for a second and un uncrumple it. And if it maintains its shape once it's uncrumpled and it's not cracking, um, you've got a really great tortilla there. Um, and if you don't, you know, maybe try steaming a little bit more, maybe add a little bit of moisture to uh, your masa or try, you know, you might have overcooked your tortillas. All, all viable options, but the crumple test will, will hold the truth. 
So I've mixed together my masa, um, <clears throat> whether I've used your masarina or whether mm -hmm. I used my nixtamalized corn. Tough to say. It is tough. <laughs> so I've, I've mixed it together. Now tell me the difference between putting together a table tortilla and a frying tortilla. So a table tortilla, I only, I included this because um, it's hard to undo that knowledge once I learned this. And it was kind of a revelation to me because I realized first and foremost, like the tortillas that we eat out in the world, you know, um, that are produced on an industrial scale. Like there's just so much thought that goes into this. And I learned this from El Milagro, which is one of the largest tortillerias, family owned tortillerias in the country. Um, and uh, one of its 13 owners, uh, all the brothers and sisters who own it, um, Jesse Lopez taught me when I asked him, you know, hey, can you make a tortilla for us? He was like, kind of like, you know, it was like a, what, me walking into Sherman, Sherman Williams and asking for a white paint. <laughs> you know, there's like hundreds of, you know, white paint variations like egret and marshmallow and, you know, like corn probably. So I, uh, I, I realized that tortillas are kind of similar in this way, um, but he really splits them up into two camps. One is a recipe or a frying tortilla and the other one is a, is a table tortilla. A table tortilla is the soft kind that we would use for like, you know, as the name implies, like passing around the table, making a taco out of it. Um, these are the most common. The frying tortilla is really kind of like the advent of, uh, yeah, it's more technical on kind of like an industrial commercial basis, but it's important because what it's achieving is a low moisture and a, and a coarser grind, which means that it fries up really nicely. Um, it doesn't take on a lot of that oil when you're frying it. It like makes it really crispy and crunchy. And so some people mimic that effect by taking stale tortillas, which basically are, you know, quite dry, right? Like if you think about what staleness is, it's just sort of the absence of moisture. Um, but it's sort of upped a little bit by like a coarser grind. So um, in this case, you know, when you're actually grinding it, you can kind of make sure there's like a little bit of kind of like a grit to it, um, the masa that you're making. But, you know, worst case scenario, you can always just make sure you've got it sort of a drier tortilla that you then fry straight away. Um, or like I said, you can get a table tortilla, dry it out for a couple of days, get it stale and, and fry it too. Both will work. What I love about your book, Masa, is after we get through all of the technical understanding about uh, processing the corn, or we've used your masarina and we've made this beautiful dough, you then go on to offer the instructions to turn this dough into endless number of dishes empanadas, the bollos, which are stuffed masa ball-shaped dumplings, chalupas, and atole. Can you expand on atole? What is it and why should we all try it? Atole is probably like one of the first masa uh, applications. You know, it's it's debated, but atole is basically just masa drink. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, you take masa, um, the dough and you cut it with some water or, you know, some kind of liquid, you could do milks, alternative milks. Um, and you basically, it's like the, the translation is not as appetizing. It's, it's a gruel, G-R-U-E-L, uh, but it is, uh, it's quite tasty. If you've ever had champurrado, which is like one of the most famous atole applications, that's like a spiced sort of hot chocolate uh, with masa, it's like thickened with masa, that is an atole. Um, but you've got all sorts of variations in the theme. Chile atole, which is, you know, as the name implies, has chilies in it. It's a little bit more savory, uh, spicy. You've got um, just like straight atole with sugar and but like panela in it. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a really amazing way to consume masa that's like not 
something we would probably immediately think of when you think of a dough, but it's certainly one of the most ubiquitous applications you can find throughout Mexico. Jorge Gaviria, I will never take a simple tortilla for granted ever again. Uh, <laughs> your book, Masa, is beautiful. It's new. It is really something everybody needs to figure how they're going to improve their uh, tortilla game at home and then go on from tortillas to everything you offer that they can make from this wonderful dough. You're also the owner of Macienda where people can get everything they need from the corn to the grinder. Thank you for sharing your expertise and time with us today. Thanks so much, Bruce. My pleasure. There's just nothing better than tortillas, mm -mm. especially homemade tortillas, mm -mm. and they're made on the comal, and they're warm, mm. and a oh, tiny God. little bubbly on the edges. And, and as they call them on the great British baking show, ta ta tacos. 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 They have tacos. <laughs> tacos. And, pic like... and pico de gallo. Oh, yeah, and pico de gallo. Oh, that was just painful, that whole Mexican week episode <laughs> of the great British baking show. All right, don't was... add us. If you love that show, that's very nice. We do watch it, but... Yeah, so the, uh, really the only food show we watch. Uh, but the, their tortillas had problems. And when we actually saw some of them pressing out the tortillas with pie plates, the bottoms of pie plates, and I said to Bruce, oh, that's how sometimes in Texas, in rural Mexican diners, yeah. you see the old ladies doing it is with the pie plate. Yeah, Jorge sells a couple of tortilla presses. I have a big, heavy tortilla press. I've seen some of the old ladies actually just do it by hand. They make the masa ball, of course. and it goes back and forth from hand to hand to hand, so it's flat and beautiful. I've tried that technique i cannot do it yeah exactly okay so enough about masa and enough about tortillas and tamales and all that stuff that great stuff that comes out of masa let's talk about what's making us happy in food this week chestnuts are back baby <laughs> and the, lo the local chestnuts from Freund's. shout out to Freund's farm market from their trees they are so delicious, and it's funny. I roasted some to have for dessert last night, and they were perfect, unlike the batch I made two nights ago, which I overbaked, and they were Because we little... were watching the Great British Baking <laughs> Show, and you forgot that they were in the oven. And when you peeled them, they were like, uh, I don't chestnut croutons, broke yeah, a couple were, of teeth on them. They were croutons. But now, last night's now, were good. Now, listen. I want to say that this podcast goes out to people all across the country and even across the globe. Hey, UK. Hey, Australia. We know that you're listening. So... A lot of people cannot get chestnuts from a farm who ha that happens to have <laughs> chestnut trees. So what do you do if you live in Texas? If you can find chestnuts in your supermarket, wherever you are, there's a trick. First of all, get them within the first few days they have them because chestnuts don't last very long, especially the way most supermarkets in the U.S. store them, which is at room temperature. We're talking about fresh chestnuts still in their shells. We're not talking about jarred yeah. or packaged chestnuts. Right. Those are available everywhere. We're talking about the stuff that's in the produce section. Yep. And they're usually they're sitting in a bag, you know, like a burlap sack, and they're just sitting in an aisle. So they should have been refrigerated, and very few places do, because they will mold inside Ugh. the shells. So Ugh. you're going to literally have to pick one by one in that barrel. You're going to have to pick up each one, feel it, make sure it's firm. There are no like gaps that if you don't feel like the chestnut is shrinking underneath that skin. Correct. <clears throat> it needs to be firm. It needs to be solid. No cracks in it. And again, try and get it within the first week and then buy a lot and keep them in your refrigerator or even your freezer. Right. I think that's really important because the chestnut shrinks inside that shell. And so you want to feel it to make sure the shell right. is firm against the well, it's kind of like your brain as you get older. It <laughs> shrinks inside your skull. Oh, well, 
Chestnuts look a lot like brains. Okay, so what's making me happy in this week while I still have my brain are, and I think this has made me happy before, but are air fried parsnips. And if you haven't ever tried air fried parsnips, you are truly missing out. And it is parsnip season unless you're going to be like old New Englanders and overwinter them in the ground, oh, which is so sweet. Mm. Yeah, you leave them in the ground and they freeze in the ground and then thaw in the spring, thaw, and they are overwintered and they are so sweet that it's like eating a Jolly Rancher. Mm-hmm. They're so sweet. But now is when parsnips are being harvested across our part of the world. And to make them in the air fryer, you just cut them into French fry-like shapes, Right? Uh, you can leave the thin tail intact, but are the thin in, root end intact. But then you cut the rest of it into French fry shapes, or what do you call that? Wedges? Batons. Baton- oh, batons. Oh, yeah. Oh. Okay, anyway, and you put a little olive oil, salt, and pepper on them. How long in the air fryer? Uh, they take anywhere from. 18 to 30 minutes, depending upon how sweet they are, because they'll brown faster with more sugar or how big you cut them. So start checking at about 18. Shake them every now and then. What temperature? I like it 400 degrees. Okay, and there you go. The air fried parsnips are one of the world's best foods. Mm -hmm. Trust me, break out the ketchup. So that's our show, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thanks for joining us this week. We really appreciate your being on this journey with us. We really appreciate you as our audience. Check out our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Join in. There'll be lots more content. We're trying to make a real play for content on Facebook. So join in there and answer questions, talk back to us, or find us on any social media platform. And don't forget to check out our TikTok channel, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, where I am doing a ton of air fry recipes, and our YouTube channel with the same name, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Mark is on camera doing lots of delicious recipes, and we will see you next week on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.